Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Adam Milgram grew up in a very entrepreneurial family and being the third generation of business builders, he always knew that he would somehow be involved in selling stuff. However, early on, he had an epiphany that he'd only be successful if he was selling stuff he really believed in and that would make the world a better place. Since then, he's been committed to combining his interest in technology with his desire for impact, being a serial angel investor and now partner of Giant Leap, Australia's first 100% impact venture capital fund. Along with previous podcast guests, the fabulous Rachel Yang, Adam uses his expertise across customer marketing, e-commerce and innovation to invest in exceptional, rapidly scalable businesses that blend financial returns with deep social and environmental impact. Adam is generous with his time and incredibly consistent in his focus on creating value for others. So make sure you listen right to the end of the interview, where Adam shares a wonderfully curated list of resources for founders and business builders. Adam, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, It feels like entrepreneurship sort of runs in your blood. I understand you come from sort of an entrepreneurial family. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how that's shaped where you've ended up today? Yeah, absolutely. So entrepreneurialism does run in my blood and was certainly dinner time conversation as we were growing up and a big part of my family law or my family history. The stories about my great grandmother who started um, a retail fashion shop in Collins Street in Melbourne and how important basically entrepreneurialism and business was to, to being able to be in the position that we are today. And that, that tradition continued through my grandparents and and my mother and hopefully continues through my family today. So you mentioned sort of strong female role models going all the way back to your great grandma. I know you've worked, well, one of the first places you worked was with your mother. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like working sort of in the family business and, and working in an environment that, you know, might be a little bit different to other people's, you know, first work experience? So one of my first jobs during uni was to work in the in the family business, which is in women's fashion. And so I I was in the marketing team, and part of my job was to read the magazines of the time. And so like Dolly and those magazines, which we, which weren't exactly the magazines that my friends were necessarily reading, but for me that that was it was so natural to be in that environment. The the office was full of successful, powerful, ambitious women. I was a minority as a guy in that environment. I think most of the other guys were in the IT department or in the finance department. There weren't really any in the core operating of the business. And so it it was completely natural for me to 
have women, successful women all around me in business, right from when I had my first job. And it wasn't until after that, until I um, worked in other workplaces that I understood that that was an unusual circumstance because it felt completely natural for me growing up in that environment. Firstly, growing up around people who are prepared to take risks and back themselves, but then also being in an environment where the gender mix is a bit different. Do you think that has any impact on the way you work today? Certainly it has an impact on my values and what I think is normal and what success might look like. The idea that women have roles and should should be prevented or allowed to only do certain things is absurd to me. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It's certainly not the example that I've been shown and uh, not the, the real world experience that I've had. And so I think that means that I can speak with a lot of confidence and authenticity when I say that I truly believe that women need to be filling all roles and that we need to be doing what we can to empower and lift up women to fill those roles and to make sure that they aren't limited by societal constraints or systematic injustices. And so that for me, like just makes it a very natural fit. So tell us about the work you're doing now. And as you say, you know, that values bit, how does that inform your approach as an investor? So maybe it's helpful if I step back a bit and to what I was doing beforehand, and then that'll lead into what I'm doing now and why, why I'm doing it. I think so as I was growing up, it was clear to me that I would do business and that that would involve selling stuff to people. But I hadn't really thought much more than about like caring about what I sold or who the customers would be. I just thought that like business just meant selling stuff. And so when I left university, I, I went into the business of helping people sell stuff. And I worked in strategy and consulting and marketing and digital e-commerce just to help companies sell stuff. And the big realization for me was that I actually didn't want to just help companies sell stuff. I actually wanted to work with companies where I cared about the stuff that they were selling. That became really important to me, particularly as I thought about the future. And when I came to that realization, it was like a, a light switch had been flicked and I could no longer continue to sell shoes that I, I had no care about. I had to find companies that I cared about. And when I thought about what I cared about, I, I cared about the environment and I cared about systemic injustice, equality, healthcare, education, things that I can look to and say, like, this is going to create a better world for us to live in and also for future generations. And it was at that time that I was starting to work with some smaller companies, some startups, and it seemed a really natural fit to combine the idea of having a positive impact on the world and supporting this kind of new generation of entrepreneurs and these these new startups. And I was lucky enough to meet with Will Richardson at that time, who and he had the ambition and the, the desire to create Giant Leap. And so I teamed up with him and helped with the setup of that first fund as a venture partner on that fund and growing that relationship with him and Rachel Yang, who's our other partner on the fund, and launched our second fund last year and I'm now a full-time partner on that fund as we seek to invest in the next generation of impactful entrepreneurs. So to help inform sort of what Giant Leap does, can you talk a little bit about the process that you go through to decide whether there's a company that you want to invest in? So Giant Leap is a seed to Series A stage investor. 
we typically invest in companies where they have some early traction with customers or prototype through to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue per month. And really they're looking for capital to help grow and expand their offering to find more companies. And so the, the typical process for us is to meet with and to look for and to talk to a huge number of companies each year. This year, we're on track for over 1,300 companies that we'll interact with as opportunities. We then go through a process of filtering to find the real gems in that pipeline of the ones we really want to invest in. And so we do a, our first step is to do an impact screen. So we look at what the impact of this organization will be if it fits into our themes. The second is to look at a commercial screen. Is there a market opportunity? Are customers willing to pay? Are there good unit economics available here? If that is the case, then we normally progress to a meeting with one of the team members. Those meetings are kind of the first get to know each other with the founder, understand their why of why they're solving, what unique insight they have, what traction they have to date, what their ambitions are for the future. And then that will flow onto a series of more meetings with the rest of the team. We'll do due diligence in the background. We often do customer interviews to understand why the customer has chosen them as a company and what point of difference they might serve onto kind of negotiation of an agreement, legals, et cetera, et cetera. It's always hard because you never want to pick favorites, but are there companies that you'd love to talk about that sort of illustrate why Giant Leap or, or how Giant Leap invests? I mean, they're all our favorites. We've got about 25 companies in the portfolio at the moment across our two funds, but maybe I'll, I'll choose Hex because that was our most recently announced investment. And Hex is an education platform started by Jeanette Chia. She's an outrageously strong founder, really insightful, really passionate about helping young people transition from school to the workforce or to further education with the skills that they really need, often the skills that aren't taught either at school or in universities. And we see that gap as being a really important gap. It's a pivotal time in people's lives where getting them the right education teaching them about entrepreneurialism, teaching about impact, teaching them about financial education, basically how to be good adults can have a pivotal impact on their life trajectory and how, how satisfied they are in work and the kind of work that they're doing. And so Jeanette launched a digital service where people can go through this education program. And for us, it's a really exciting both impact and also business opportunity. We see this as a, a huge gap that's unmet by universities and schools. It's extremely hard for them to be agile in their curriculum. And so as the world is changing faster and faster, they get left further and further behind. And even if they try and catch up, they'll catch up to where they should have been two years ago and it will be too late again. And so we see companies like Hex and particularly founded by someone like Jeanette as being right on the forefront of that and being ahead of the curve of and knowing kind of what people need to be doing. And so that was probably the last one that we got really excited about um, and um, invested in. Something like Hex you think is even more desperately needed given the sort of inequality that's developed in education through COVID. How much do you take into consideration the sort of current environment or the or the or what's topical today, given that presumably these are companies that you want to endure through, you know, all sorts of different cycles? Yeah, that's a really good question and one that we have to weigh up 
we're definitely looking for companies where they have a long-term future. We're investing for five, seven, 10 years plus. And so we don't want to hit the fad of this week or the, the hot thing of the moment. But we do want to have strong current tailwinds behind the themes. And so we do want to have companies where they're being pushed by a strong desire for solving short-term problems as well as a long-term opportunity. And so definitely online education and the gap of schools has helped to push people towards programs like Hex. But we think that's a structural tailwind, that that's going to continue, that that doesn't drop off because of COVID kind of being kind of less important in the news, that those trends that have been unlocked are really prevalent and they will continue over the over time so that Hex can continue to serve their customers for a long time to come. And one of the things I love about Giant Lape, obviously, is it's it's looking to sort of value impact. What's the model you use for deciding whether a company really has the, the impact that it says it's going to and how do you avoid that sort of greenwashing or sort of social washing that sometimes happens? Yeah, great question and something we think a lot about. So we have three criteria for impact that we need to look for. One is that the founders really care. We know that there are going to be tough decisions to be made by founders over the journey and we want founders who are going to choose to maximize long-term impact over short-term profit. And we want founders who want to do that because they believe that that will make the best company as well as having the biggest impact. The second is that we need to find companies where the impact is embedded into the business model. So that is that the product that they are selling is having the, the impact that they want to create in the world. So Hex is a perfect example of that. Jeanette, the impact she wants to have is on young people and their education, their success. And so the product she is selling is education. There's a really tight link there. So you can't strip out that impact. And she could no longer sell product if, if she didn't want to have that impact. And so you can't, they're inextricably linked. The third is that it's measurable. And that is to say that we can, over time, measure the difference that this company has had on the world. That's often the one that doesn't get fully figured out until post-investment and often gets iterated on during the life of the company because in these really early stage companies, often the impact you can measure today is not the impact that you want to have over the long term. And so today you might measure the outcomes or the outputs of a program, but really what you want to get to is a point where you can measure the actual impact that an organization is having. And so we work with each individual portfolio company, set metrics that make sense to them, that are ones that are important for their business to measure and that are signals internally that they're in, heading in the right direction. And then we report those metrics back to our investors as well. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think is really unusual and special about Giant Leap is that that reporting mechanism is something that you seem to invest a lot of time in. Is that difficult to be able to report in that quite nuanced way around stuff that's, you know, not, you know, sales revenue or customer attention or some of those other more well-defined metrics? It's definitely something we focus on. It's it's a promise that we've made to our investors that we will do it. And so it's, it's certainly important to us to uphold that. It's also important to our founders. Our founders are driven by the impact that they're going to have on the world. We think that that makes them better founders and more likely to be commercially successful as well because they are thinking about the long-term success and the long-term impact they're having. And so we're not asking them to create metrics for our sake. 
these, these are really metrics that these teams want to measure. They want to have a handle over. They want them to grow. And so reporting them back to us is just folds into part of their standard quarterly reporting. They're very likely in their management reports and their reports to their teams anyway, because they're numbers that are important to them. And you personally take board seats on some of the companies that you invest in. Is that something that's important to you to be represented on the board or is that really only if the the entrepreneur wants you to be on the board? How do you think about that sort of governance role? We are agnostic going in on how a relationship will be with a founder. We have some founders where we take very soft approach and we, we're there on call and we're available to help where a founder wants us. And we have other teams where we take board seats and where we're much more operationally involved with the company. The fundamental belief that we have is that we are looking for companies where we trust founders to execute. We're not interventionist investors. We don't see an idea or an opportunity and say we could really help. That is not our space. We, we see founders and teams who are executing unbelievably well and we say, really, we really want to support them to continue and to do even better. And so that's the framework we bring to it. And then within that, we'll take whatever role makes sense. There is a benefit to having investor representation in the governance of a company. And so if we do lead an investment round, it's likely that we'll have some role in that governance, be it board position or observer. However, if there are other investors in the round that make more sense for one of those to take that governance role, we're very happy to kind of support not on an official board position as well. What would your advice be to founders when they're thinking about the investors that they're going to effectively invite on the journey and then who will be the lead investor and might have some of those more formal positions like board seats? How do founders know who the right fit for them are? Yeah, it's a great question. And absolutely essential for founders to be thinking about. I would suggest founders should do background checks and call portfolio companies of their investors. The most important for me is that there's values alignment, that there's alignment on how you should deal with problems, on timings, on growth ambitions, on on kind of the broad plan, and that on the values of that organization, that there's a really strong fit with their investors. It's extremely hard to get investors off a cap table once they've invested. It's probably harder than getting out of a marriage. My recommendation is to definitely call other founders that have interacted with the investors. Definitely ask your investors hard questions about what their aspirations for this company are, what they would do in different situations to make sure you truly are aligned on the vision. And then I think build a relationship which is built on trust. It sounds like your job is so much fun. You meet lots of really highly motivated, smart people wanting to have a positive impact on the world. What are the sort of less glamorous and more challenging parts of your job? My job is really fun and that is a great way to sum it up and that that is exactly why I love it. The hardest part, I think, is saying no. So implicit in that is we have to say no to a lot of great founders and it could be a timing issue, it could be a market issue, it could be... A competitive issue, like it often has nothing to do with them per se. And so certainly the least fun part is is that, especially when it comes from founders we have great respect for and really want to see them be successful. Obviously, founders are hoping that, you know, they find great investors like you that can bring some of their own experience and insight to help 
grow the company. But are there things that you've learned from the entrepreneurs that you've invested in? Oh, every day. That That is part of the fun of the job. And actually, most of the time when I'm trying to support a founder, the best thing I can do is introduce them to another founder who's already successfully navigated the same problem. And we see that as really common in our portfolio. So we, ha- we have 25 companies in their portfolio. Very many of them have are at different stages and have gone through the kinds of problems that other companies will go through. And so a big part of our job is to work out who has solved this problem in an interesting way, who can we connect with, who can we introduce to, because the founders are living and breathing this every day. No one knows their company better than them. No one has enough context to give really great advice. And so being able to connect peer-to-peer is, for me, a massive way to support our founders. One of the most valuable traits I think in founders is that resilience and that capacity to pick themselves up after a failure or a setback. Do you have any personal or professional setback or failures that you've experienced personally that you've learned from? Yeah, I, I agree with you. Resilience is a huge thing. I I think failure is a really interesting word because the, the idea of failure doesn't really make sense to me. It's I've definitely, I've done things that didn't work. Uh, I've started a bunch of businesses, um, the most recent of which was a sandwich shop in the city called Paperboy, which I started about 10 years ago. And on a kind of financial metric, that company wasn't successful. But I like I would be loath to describe it as a failure. I learned so many things from that. And so many of the things that I can do now are a direct result of the experiences I had then. I think that that for me is the the setting yourself up that you're on a continual learning journey and that there is no success or failure along the way. There is just learning for me is one of the ways to stay resilient through the through the roller coaster of life. Is there something that people are often surprised to find out about you? <laughs> in the in the covid world, the most surprising thing is that I'm much taller than people expect. Given a lot of first meetings are on Zoom now, when people meet me for the first time, I'm very often told that I'm taller than people expect. <laughs> That's hilarious. In terms of advice that you've received from other people, what's the sort of best advice that that you keep returning to to remind yourself of? So this goes back to your question around resilience and getting through the roller coaster of life. I think the phrase that hits me most often is this too shall pass. And mm. I think that for me, that's really an important way to understand that like, yes, things are really tough in the moment or things are really brilliant in the moment but that it's a long game and whatever is happening in this moment, it will pass and we need to make great decisions that are for the long term. And so that, that's a reoccurring theme that, that flows through my head. What about people that have really shaped you or that you really admire or that you try and role model yourself on? Anyone that comes to mind? Certainly. So the obviously in my family, I have a lot of brilliant role models. And so my grandfather great-grandmother and my mother have all been very, very strong influences on or how I choose to model myself. Are you able to share a little bit about each of them, about what are the things that make them special for you? Sure. So my, my great-grandmother, I didn't get to know, but obviously had a strong entrepreneurial bent and took huge risks to start this business and really set the family up for success. My, my grandfather travelled from 
Europe to Australia when he was very young, came alone on a student visa and really made his own way through the world. And amazingly, really, the dinnertime conversation with him has always been around supporting the community and philanthropy and our responsibility. That certainly has, has played very strongly through and, and definitely is part of why I think about my responsibility to the world and why I think about using my skills and my resources to have a positive impact and why I choose to invest in, in companies that have that. And then my mum like is a force for entrepreneurialism and using business and being resolute in, in a vision to, to continue to grow that business. And certainly a fantastic role model in that respect as well. In terms of books and podcasts and things that have been influential for you or that you recommend, what are some of the things that are your go-to? Yeah, so I, I love podcasts. I'm very often listening to podcasts. So have a bunch of those that I would recommend. One locally is Mike's called Human of Purpose. So that's all about people who are doing purposeful work. One that is really interesting called Brave New Work which is all about the future of workplaces and how to create collaborative, democratic workplaces and really thinking about pushing to a better way of working. Uh, another one, which is probably a bit more fun, is People I Mostly Admire, which is just a great podcast. And then on the, on the internet, something that might be slightly more helpful is First Round Review. So First Round are an investor that invests very early in the US and they've published a book on called Essentials of Management. They've got a their review, which is an online series or an e-newsletter of going through different management skills that entrepreneurs should have. And their resources are fantastic. I would highly, highly recommend them. And then on a technical point of view, definitely anyone that's thinking of raising venture capital should read Venture Deals by Brad Feld which is step-by-step step everything in a term sheet and really demystifies what venture capitalists are thinking when they write terms into an agreement and can help you negotiate with the venture capitalists, understanding what is normal, what is fair, and what each party is looking at through that deal. Venture deals, even though it's American, it still has relevance here for Australian entrepreneurs, you think? Yeah, the terms are very similar. There, there might be some slight differences, but Australian VCs are fairly aligned to the US counterparts in terms. One other resource that's probably worth mentioning um, for anyone looking to raise capital, there's a website called startupfunding.com.au. So it's startup-funding.com.au. And that's got a list of basically all the investors who are currently investing in Australia, what stage they like to invest in, what sector they like to invest in, what size checks they like to write. And it's a great way to start to build a pipeline of maybe who you might want to approach when you're thinking about raising capital. That's super helpful. One of the things I saw in your background is that you'd done Seth Godin's Alt-MBA. What was that like? So I love that. So as I said, I had a marketing background and so I read Seth Godin's books maybe 20 years ago and still think about Purple Cows and how he kind of changed the way people were thinking about marketing. And I think he changed the way people thought about online education when he launched the old MBA. It was the first that I knew of cohort-based course where it was a combination of virtual and asynchronous learning. It was very much about publishing. There are things that I learned in that course that I still think about and use today, particularly 
how to expand your mind when thinking about solutions and not to try and find the best solution, but to try and find 10 or 20 possible solutions and then test those. And that falls very much into the kind of iterative model of how startups can work because they're in constant learning mode. And and I think that that for me came through really strongly in the old MBA. Your wife's an entrepreneur as well. You sit on the board of a number of organizations, including your portfolio companies, and you have three little kids. How do you fit it all in? Like Any advice for the mere mortals like us listening that you know want to be able to achieve as much as you do? No advice at all. I, I'm probably accused of trying to do too much and I'm not sure that serves. But for me, I just, what I've always taken is to follow my interests and to use my skills where I can. And so I'm really passionate about all the organizations that I work with. I try and only work with organizations that I'm really passionate about so that I, so it doesn't feel like work. It's not begrudging. It's as much as possible. And then I try and give my kids as much love as I can and as they need. And it feels like we've got the right balance, but it's always, always a stretch and my calendar's always jammed. So I'll try and give you some time back in your day, but two more questions. If you were going to give an entrepreneur who was thinking about raising capital any advice, what would your advice be? That's a huge question. So I think the first thing is to be really clear about why they were doing it. Often raising capital is actually like the starting line, whereas, um, and so you want to know like where you're going to post raising the capital. And so I would want to make sure that the entrepreneur knew what what the purpose of raising the capital was, what they were going to do with it, why that that was the best route for them, because it's not always the best route. There are very often other routes that are more suitable. And so probably being really clear on why you're doing it and what you're going to do after you raise the money it would be my, my first question. And then there would be plenty of other questions after that. I think we went through a phase of getting your company's name in the paper and the valuation based on how much money you raised was sort of like the sort of sign of success. And as you say, actually, you've got to do something with the money that you raise. And that being the start line, I think is super advice. Last question, what are you really excited or optimistic about? I'm optimistic about every, I, I think I'm, I was born as an optimist. So I'm optimistic about everything. I'm particularly optimistic at the moment because it feels like the climate debate has shifted and that we're now in a position where it is accepted that we need to work really hard on this problem and that we're going to, that, so I'm optimistic that it feels like the public narrative and the time has come where everyone has decided that now this is the problem to solve of our generation, which I truly think it is, and that hopefully we have a government that's motivated to do that as well, and that we have enough pressure from our international friends and from the public that actually we get some movement on that issue. So that's probably what recently what has become most optimistic for me. Well, it's fantastic to know that um, people like yourself who could be working on anything are choosing to narrow their focus on stuff that is meaningful and that has benefit beyond just the dollars that get returned to investors and that you know, the work that you're doing hopefully benefits us all. So super grateful that you've spent some time with us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. 
We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.